You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17. And let's pray. Lord, as we just feel the uh, leading of your spirit, just calling this church to fast and to even join many other churches in the Northwest here in a week of fasting, a week of praying, a week of waiting on you and seeking you and crying out to you in desperation. Lord, as we prepare our hearts, our minds and our bodies for this week, we just... um, We want to set aside religion and we want to set aside self-righteousness. We want to set aside uh, works-based fellowship with you, Lord. And Lord, we want to call out that you would shower us with your grace and shower us with the gospel. And that, Lord, in response to your grace and in response to salvation and in response to redemption, Lord, we would willingly and freely cry out to you and wait upon you and call upon you and petition you and surrender to you in our physical bodies. Lord, we pray for this week and the week to come, Lord, that that this would be a week that changes this church to be more like you. Lord, that would shape this church to be more like the bride of Christ, to be more like the sheep within the flock, to be more like the living stones within the temple, to be more like the branches connected to the vine. Lord, we need you. And there's not one of us here that's perfect in discipline. There's not one of us here that's perfect in communion. We just pray that you'd grow us and shape us and develop discipline and communion and fellowship with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, the end of the book of Habakkuk, says this. Though the fig tree may blossom, or excuse me, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fall or fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Now, at the end of this book by the prophet Habakkuk, we read this incredible statement of faith by him. And you got to wonder, how is it possible? How is it possibly true? This has got to be just some kind of wishful thinking. How would it be possible that every source of food and sustenance would have failed, would have fallen off or uh, withered on the vine or scattered from the fold or the flock. Every source of food and sustenance could be gone, absolutely gone. And yet you could still say, I am satisfied. I'm satisfied. I am full. I'm full of joy. I haven't eaten in days. I haven't even seen anything that I could put in my mouth. There's no source, but I'm not depressed about it. I'm not bummed out about it. I'm not worried about it. In fact, the Lord has made my feet like a leaping deer. I got energy. I got hope. I got spring in my step. How's that possible? Wishful thinking, surely. That's what I would say. That's what my flesh says. But if you look over at John chapter 4, verse 31, it says that the disciples urged Jesus to eat. 
You know, he's active in ministry. And so often in ministry, the hours go by, the needs never end. People are constantly coming to you. You know, there's no noon lunchtime for the hurting. And Jesus had been forsaking nourishment. And so the disciples said, Rabbi, eat. Come on, you got to eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. What does he got a little... uh Twizzlers in his pocket or, you know, what, 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 what do we not know about here? And the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. How's it possible when all source of sustenance is gone, when you've been pouring out your earthly energy and have nothing around you to eat that you could say, I'm full, I'm satisfied, I have joy within me. I have food, but it's not outside source. It's doing the will of the Father that sustains me. It's finishing His work that sustains me. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus says a well-known statement when he's speaking to the tempter, Satan, out in the wilderness. And he says to Satan, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man can live on something besides earthly sustenance for a period of time you know just after 40 days the body begins to consume itself and the body begins to starve to death but in that period it is possible for your spirits to be aright for your joy to be full for your countenance to be complete and within that period of time it's not because of that earthly food it's because of the will of the father It's because you're enjoying time with Jesus. It's because you're feasting upon the word of God. And so as you look at the Old Testament and the new and the principles that are laid out in fasting and the stories that are given to us and the charges and the encouragement to fast, it's dangerous to just encourage the the church to do something. Just do something. You know, here's something that we're told to do and fill out the survey and you'll probably find out you've never done it, so do it. You know, and well, that's great. We've just learned that we're supposed to do something. Good job, Pastor Rory. But not only do we want to, yes, be encouraged to do something for the Lord, but why would we do something for the Lord? And as you look at the gospel which is something we've been doing in depth the last many months, wanting our focus to be upon the gospel, we see that the gospel actually shapes our view of fasting. The gospel actually motivates us to fast. And the gospel actually is the means by which we can fast. Knowing that we've rebelled against a holy loving, righteous creator. We've slapped him in the face and turned and worshiped the created things. But even while we were yet sinners and at war with God, he sent his only son to die for us and to redeem us and to pay the ransom price of sin that was holding us hostage and holding us in bondage. And as the Holy Spirit revealed to us that great love that Jesus poured out on the cross, we in turn respond to that great love, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. We're saved by his grace. And then the Holy Spirit begins to work within us fruits of righteousness. And one of the greatest fruits of that righteousness that comes from salvation, that's just a natural product of God's amazing grace to us is communion with God. Communion with God. Communion with each member of the Trinity. As 1 John tells us, we have fellowship with the Father. We have fellowship with the Son. 
As 2 Corinthians closes, we're told that we have fellowship of the Holy Spirit. As Philippians chapter 2 tells us, we have fellowship and communion with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus Christ, the wall that has been built between us and God because of our sin and our rebellion, our prayers to him bounce off, is torn down. That middle wall of separation has been broken down and communion has been restored. That communion that not only comes in the form of bread and a cup that we partake of on a regular basis. While yes, that is communion, that is not all of communion. Communion is prayer. Communion is meditation upon the word. Communion is waiting upon the Lord. Communion is worship and communion is fasting. These are all means by which we have this fellowship with the Lord, by which they are enhanced, by which they're strengthened, by which God is glorified and we are refreshed. We are nourished. Look in uh, John chapter six, verse 47 says, most assuredly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. That came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Cannibalism is what they yelled. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, but he who eats this bread will live forever. I'll tell you, you guys, in that section of scripture, we have the gospel. We have the picture of communion. We have the picture of nourishment and sustenance not on this earthly food but on the bread of life jesus christ not cannibalism but partaking through faith in what jesus did on the cross when his body was broken and his blood was spilled by partaking in that through faith in such a way that christ is in me and i am in christ Guys, that is communion. That is fellowship. That is abiding. What's your communion like with the Lord? What's your fellowship like with the Lord? So often interrupted because of the longings for the breads of this world. So longing quenched because we set our Bibles down to go put a Pop-Tart in the toaster, you know? But there are times in a Christian's life where it is so fitting and so right and so needed to set aside the starches and the proteins and the sugars, to set those things aside and to bring onto your plate the word of God, to bring onto your plate communion, to bring onto your plate abiding in Christ. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, if you want to flip there, 
says the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. As you look at this, the context is that of fasting. The Pharisees were fasting often because they found their righteousness in their works. You think of the, you know, the parable of the Pharisee praying in the temple and the tax collectors just down from him. And the Pharisee says, I thank you, Lord. I'm not like other men. And one of the works that he lists is that I fast often. I just fast all the time. And that makes me right before you, God. But Jesus says, you know what? The time is going to come where people will still fast. But it's not going to be in these old ways like the Pharisees did. Self-righteous reasons. It'll make me look good before God or I'll be able to manipulate God into doing something. But no, rather, the fasting will be in a new wineskin. It'll have a new outlook on things. It'll have a new mindset on things. It'll rest in the work of the bridegroom. And so now, New Testament Christianity, we still fast, but not with the same mindset necessarily that the Jews did. And really, not with the same mindset as the Pharisees, where they did it out of self-righteousness. We do not fast out of self-righteousness, but rather we fast for more. We fast for more of the bridegroom. We fast that we would be part of the work that was accomplished by the bridegroom, by Jesus Christ. We fast so that we could have more of the power that is given by that bridegroom. We fast that we could know the bridegroom more, even that while he's gone, we can still be with him. And so we're encouraged this week as there's a call to corporate prayer and to corporate fasting. Not the easiest thing in the world to do. It's not even the easiest thing in the world to prepare to do. These last couple weeks have been kind of hard on me, you know? It's just like, you know it's coming. It's an affliction of the flesh in a sense. You know it's coming and, you know, your flesh wants to pull away. But your spirit has tasted of these intimate times with Christ in the past and says, I want more. I want more. How has it been a whole year since we've fasted in this capacity or in this manner as the corporate church? Just read this week about a a man that went into the doctor and he had a bit of a weight problem. And the doctor, you know, prescribed to him that he would eat normally for two days and then he would skip a day. Then he would eat for two days and skip a day and so on and so forth for a month. And he said, when you come back, you should probably have lost about five pounds. And that's about, you know, about what you need. So a month goes by and the man comes back in and the dude has lost 60 pounds. And the doctor says, you know, uh, you know, what did you do? And the man said, I'll tell you what, that day was the hardest day of my week. What, when you abstain from food? And the man said, no, when I skipped for a whole day. Skipping skipping. Skipping for a whole day. Thank you. Skipping. Could you tell that I was just waiting for that to come? Okay, put that behind us. Skipping is not easy. Skipping one meal, not the easiest thing. Two meals, not the easiest thing. Three meals, pretty tough. Two days, three days. And actually, as you read about it and as you've experienced it, by the third day, the hunger pains begin to subside and three and four days goes by, not so bad. By the end of the fourth day, the hunger pains come back. Fifth day, not so bad. Seventh day, pretty brutal. But then after the seventh day, you begin to not feel those hunger pains as much. And it's just interesting as you read God's chosen fast and as you read 
uh, what doctors have written about fasting, how there's a good chunk of a 30, 40 day fast where there are no hunger pains whatsoever until that 40th day when the body begins to consume itself. And that is when starvation begins to set in and it's time to wean yourself back out of that fasting. It's an interesting uh, science, really, uh, an interesting process, but brutal to get yourself into, hard uh, to, to uh, d- d- discipline yourself in that. And as we just want to be faithful to the word of God, we want to grow in that area of fasting. And I know that we did two studies last year and, and a couple studies since then as we worked through the book of Acts. But I'll tell you this, a message on fasting uh, and, and how especially the gospel compels us to fast. And, and, you know, we want to fast because of the grace of God that we have been put into Christ. Then therefore we want to be in Christ all the more. And if fasting is a means to do that, bring it on. But as we're faithful, to, it's, it is no means redundant to, to teach on fasting again. I'll tell you, I was going through my notes from last year and I'd forgotten so much. You know, and, and this is a study that I've taught and prepared for many times. And I just, I forget how powerful fasting is in a believer's life. Now, what is fasting? Fasting is denying the physical to seek the spiritual. It's saying I'm denying the physical food because God, I am so hungry for you. Fasting takes the physical longing that you might have and transposes it into a spiritual key. Right now, my stomach is longing for food. And Lord, I'm going to make it a longer of you. I'm going to make it something that craves you. And just as I hunger, Lord, I hunger for you. And as desperate as I am right now for bread, I'll tell you when you're fasting, actually bread sounds so good. And you smell it from a mile away. You know, it's like, oh, as hungry as I am for bread, Lord, I am so much more hungry for you. I'm not just saying I'm hungry for you because anybody can say that. Many of our worship songs have to do with hunger and I'm satisfied in you, my God, as we sang. I'm not just saying it. I am proving it. As much as I hunger for the things of this world, I hunger more for you. As one man said, fasting is an expression of a longing for God with your hunger. It's a love letter to God. It's more than a love letter for God. It's an expression of a longing for God with that hunger. And yet we so often like to push away from it or look for excuses not to do it. As God's chosen fast says, says when someone does not like the meaning of something in the Bible, they're tempted to spiritualize it. And so rob it of its cutting edge. Therefore, it can no longer cut. In the main, this is what the professing church, the evangelicals have done with the biblical teaching on fasting. To fast, we are told, is not only to abstain from food, but anything that hinders our communion with God. Or they say fasting means to do without or to practice self-denial. Book goes on to say, we have only to widen the meaning enough and the cutting edge is gone. It is true that there are many things that hinder our communion with God and many things that we need to practice self-denial in. But the fact still remains that to fast means not to eat. And it's true that there's a lot of things in our life that rob us from time with God television and music and this and that. And, you know, and, and for a period of time, it is really good to fast from those things. In fact, if you're for medical reasons, not able to fast from food, I would encourage you to fast from those things. But the biblical example of fasting is not the Israelites turning off their TV. The example is turning off their refrigerator, 
You know, it's setting that food aside. Setting that food aside. Andrew Murray in his book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, says fasting helps to express and to deepen and to confirm the resolution that we are willing to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. And there are many who are not in that place. Not right now. You wouldn't be willing to sacrifice anything or everything for the Lord. And yet you've tasted of Christ. This next week is a good opportunity to just come back. Come back to your first love. Come back to that time and where, yes, you would have given up anything just to be with the Lord for one second. As the psalmist says, a day with you, Lord, is better than a thousand days anywhere else. Is that really true? Is that really true for me? And fasting is just one way that we can express, yes, it is true. I'm not just saying I hunger for you, Lord. I'm living that I hunger for you, Lord. Revelation chapter 21, verse 6 says, He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Let me say that again. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So what's the qualifying statement of the one who gets the fountain of life freely? You thirst. Do you thirst for the living God? Just like you thirst for water on a regular basis throughout the day. Is that how you are with Christ? And man, I'm telling you, I am talking to myself right now. So I feel like I'm in my room by myself. (laughs) Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. You might just flip there real quick. But I'll begin reading Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. You got to love the language. Ho! (laughs) Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. How is it possible to come and buy when you don't have any money? How is it possible to be filled when you don't have the, the money? What it's talking about is the communion that is in Christ Jesus. And there are many of you here today and you are searching for happiness and for fulfillment in every outside source and pleasure and buzz and image and uh, taste and sound and appearance and feeling and rush from adrenaline. And you're still looking for those things. You will never find it until you taste of Jesus. Until you have fellowship with Jesus in such a way that he has come inside you. You've eaten of him. Through faith, you have received him and what he has done. And you've allowed him to tear down that middle wall of separation and restore the walls and and restore the, the fellowship. Tear down the walls, restore fellowship. (laughs) You've allowed him to do that and you will be satisfied in the inner man. And if you're looking for it somewhere else, you're looking in the wrong place. Today, you don't have any money. You can't buy it from the Lord. You can't work it from the Lord. But just come today. Come and drink from the waters of life Freely, As Jesus says in John chapter 4, before he says, I'm the bread of life, he says, I'm the living water. And if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. 
Don't look for it in an outside source. And there are people that come into this church and you're here today. You will know if it's you because the Holy Spirit's telling you that it's you. Looking for sustenance in outside resources and outside programs and outside substance, you know, and, and, and the Lord would say, come and let me come in and satisfy you and fill you. That there are even Christians who once tasted of Jesus and you've fallen away from that intimate communion and fellowship where all you need is Jesus. That's it. And you're satisfied without Christ and you're, you're in danger. In fact, you're sick. You're a sick Christian. You're not where you should be. You're finding your satisfaction in work and in home and in completed projects. But the Christian should always be calling out for more and more and more. More Jesus, more time in your presence, more of your holiness imputed to me. More of your power given to me that I could go out and be used by you. More in your kingdom, Lord. More of you glorified, Lord. More, 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 more. And you should never say, I'm good. I'm good. And we all know people that have said that. I'm good with God. I'm okay with God. Not saying that's not true. But I think a person that says that is a little bit sick, maybe really sick. And fasting is just a good time to get your mind right, to get your heart right again, to say, Lord, I've fallen from you being it. You are it. Let me show you. One man said, God rewards fasting because it is the cry of our heart that nothing in this world can satisfy but him. He must reward this cry because he is the most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In our time of fasting, we're not twisting God's arm. We're not manipulating God. But God sees that we are nothing but satisfied in him. And that's what he wants. That is glory. And he's faithful to reward. He's faithful to answer. He's he's faithful to manifest himself during those times and pour out more of himself during those times because he's glorified during those times. And so I'm going to give you some points of what fasting is. Fasting is the means of humbling oneself, or it's a means. It's a means of humbling yourself in the sight of the Lord. We'll look at some scripture on that uh, as we study on fasting. It's a means of humbling oneself. Fasting is directly connected, connected with direction, knowing where the Lord would have you go in life. So are you looking for direction? Consider fasting. Fasting is directly connected in the scripture with God's revelation and his insight given to us mere men. There's a relation there between your stomach and the spiritual realm. God's speaking to you. With fasting comes God's divine intervention. You read that in the scriptures. How many of us in this room don't need God's intervention in our life? How many of us don't need God's direction? How many of us are a little bit prideful, a little bit hard, and we don't need a little bit of humbling in our lives? Fasting is a spiritual weapon that is mighty in God for pulling down strongholds that otherwise wouldn't come down. Again, from God's chosen fast. In giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon fasting as obsolete and she's thrown it down in some dark corner to rust 
And there it has laid for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. And so in you, has fasting been put way in the back corner and is fasting rusting? So happens within our church, so happens within the body of Christ. And when you have to plead with even pastors and church leaders to fast, rust has set in. Springs aren't moving. (laughs) Joints aren't swinging. The Holy Spirit poured out upon us and that we could bring fasting back. Fasting has been neglected by most Christians, myself included. And yet for some Christians, it's been completely undiscovered. They don't even know that it's a powerful practice of Christianity. It's a powerful discipline of Christianity. In the Old Testament, we're going to read many of these examples. Moses and King David and Esther and Hannah and Elijah and Nehemiah, Ezra and Daniel all fasted, just to name a few. The New Testament, Jesus was a faster. And he fasted in preparation of his public ministry. The early church, as we've been reading the book of Acts, they fasted often. And, you know, in Acts 13 and 14, we see they fasted in preparation of sending out missionaries or appointing church leaders. There was fasting. Paul says that I fasted often. I fasted often. We can learn from that. In church history, Martin Luther and John Calvin, John Knox, David Brainerd, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, all write in their journal uh, how powerful fasting was in, in their lives and in their ministry. So why do we fast? We fast in response to God's grace. We fast to be closer to him. And there's more in the scriptures than just a few vague random verses, you know, encouraging us to press into uh, this communion with the Lord. Why has this practice been lost and why has this practice been rusty? Is it because there's a golden arch on every corner in America or, you know, that weird mermaid thing on the cups, you know, Starbucks, I guess is what I'm talking about. You know, is that why we don't fast? We just, we just can't get away from it. It's just everywhere around us is food and that's what society has become. And you know, is that why? Or is it because we just don't hunger near enough? Hunger for the Lord near enough. And we settle for those outside things. But when we have a desperate need in our life, we fast. When we have desperation, we fast. And so if you don't fast, then you don't have a longing. Now, many of us, and this is okay, someone in your family, yourself included, perhaps you're sick, you've been diagnosed with cancer, and so you go to fast for healing. And that is okay, that is good. Or you're longing for uh, more power from the Holy Spirit, and so you just go to fast. Or you're longing for freedom from addictions and from breakthrough and from spiritual bondage and oppression and depression. And so you fast and those are good. And that just shows that you've got a need and you know that, man, my Jesus is the one who can deliver me from this. And so this is how much I need my deliverer. And that's okay. And that's good. But sometimes the greatest need and the reason to fast and I don't know that I'm totally there yet, but I want to be, is to just prove to ourselves, to show to the Lord that truly, Lord, I do not need to live on bread alone. All I need is you, Lord. I'm desperate for you, Lord. And that's the number one thing I pray we'll fast for in the week to come, one week out. That's what I hope our our main motivation and our main pressing would be. Desperation for Jesus. Deeper communion with him. More of a longing for him. 
And that yes, we'll come with these things that we want to be delivered from. But those aren't the main reasons. In Judges chapter 20, verses 26 through 28, and in verse 35, we see, you know, the context is that a couple of Benjamites went out, and just to tell the story quickly, you know, they went out and they surrounded a man as he was on a journey, and the man had his concubine with him, and they wanted to harm him, and they wanted to hurt the man, and so the man, not that he was any better, certainly, sets outside this concubine, and these Benjamites just completely ravish uh, and rape this concubine uh, to the point where she's dead by morning. And the traveler goes outside, sees this concubine, mourns, cuts her up into four different pieces and ships parts of her body throughout the region to show the atrocity that's been done. Again, I'm not saying he was in the right. But Israel responds in vengeance against the Benjamites and they go to Benjamin and the, the tribe and they say, deliver these men who's done this thing to this woman, you know, and, and we'll judge them. But Benjamin wouldn't deliver these men out. So Israel goes to war with these men. And they had 400,000 men in their army against some 20,000 in the Benjamite army. And as they go to war, they have 20,000 of their men, the men of Israel, cut down by this tiny little army of Benjamin. And so they come back, kind of licking their wounds, and they cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, should we pray, uh, excuse me, should we go back out and should we fight the Benjamites? And, and del- would you deliver these guys into our hands? And the Lord says, Yes. So they go back out again and they fight the Benjamites. This time, 18,000 Israelites are cut down and this tiny little army of the Benjamites wins again. And so they come back, you know, with the gauze around their head and around their arm and the crutch, you know. Lord, I thought you said to go out there. Okay, Lord. I mean, they did a really bad thing. Lord, should we go back and fight? Will you deliver them into our hands? And this time they were in such mourning and desperation that they not only prayed, but it says that they set themselves to fast and to cry out to the Lord. And the Lord said, yes, go, I will deliver them into your hands. And so they go back out and in a mighty, with a mighty hand, the hand of the Lord, they defeat the the tribe of Benjamin. This victory came. There was something that happened in that When they fasted and prayed, the victory came. It showed the Lord how desperate they were for victory in this area. How desperate are you for victory in this area? For bondage, the addiction, spiritual oppression. You need victory. How desperate are we for revival that God would have victory in this town? in this community, in this church, that he would have victory. How desperate? Desperate enough to fast? Jehoshaphat, we studied this last year in depth. Second Chronicles chapter 20. King Jehoshaphat of Judah is in Jerusalem and three major armies come up against him. They're just outside in the valley. The Ammonites and the Moabites and other armies with them. And and there were millions of people within this army, so much so that everybody knew that Judah was dead. Judah was dead. Jerusalem was going to be ransacked. Everyone was going to die. What are we going to do? And Jehoshaphat, a good king, set and declared the whole nation to fast. And he prayed this prayer as they're fasting. He cried out and he said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm surrounded on every side and I don't know what to do. But my eyes are on you. Is that you? Surrounded on every side. You're going to be overrun. You're going to be destroyed. What are you going to do? And I encourage you, cry out to the Lord in desperation. Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And as they prayed and as they fasted, a prophet stood up and said, the Lord hears your prayers and you won't need to fight in this battle. Send out the worshipers. The worshipers can go out and they can play. And as they went out to the battle, 
In the morning, they noticed that every single person in the enemy had been destroyed by the Lord. The victory had been won and it took them three days to gather and to plunder those opposing armies. The victory was great. Judah did nothing in and of themselves to gain that victory. They just cried out to the Lord in desperation and said, this is how much we need you, Lord. We're desperate for victory. In Ezra, you can flip over to Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. And this morning, we're just going to look at some Old Testament examples of fasting. And next week, we'll come and look at the New Testament examples. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21 It says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and for our little ones and for all of our possessions. It's a powerful verse there in Ezra 8.21 because we see that fasting does two things. It's a way for us to humble ourselves before our God. So good to just recognize, Lord, I'm a hard guy. I've got a hard heart. You've been wanting to do something in me. You've been wanting to use me. And I've just been stiff-necked and hard-hearted, unwilling to part with these things. And so, Lord, I want to part from them. This is how much I want to part from. This is how much I want you. Just a, a humbling thing to fast. There's a way that they humbled themselves. And, you know, Monday, that really first whole day of the fast next week will be a day where we're humbling ourselves before the Lord. But also there in Ezra 8.21, we see that fasting is a means of receiving direction. Man, there's a lot of that in this economy. There's a lot of that in these families. You know, I know there's a lot of families here. We, we don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. We don't know where we're supposed to move. We don't know what job we're supposed to take. And have you fasted about it? Lord, I need direction so much. And I know that you're the only one that can give it. And in desperation, I I cry out to you. If you don't know what you're supposed to do or where you're to go, I just encourage you to fast. If you don't know what to do, like Jehoshaphat said, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. In Nehemiah, you just flip over, Nehemiah 1.4. Nehemiah has just been told of the destruction in Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple and the wall. And verse 4 says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Then jump over a chapter to chapter 2, verse 1. After this time of mourning and weeping and fasting and praying, says, it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes when wine was before him and I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I'd never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is not but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lie waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me with the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set, uh, I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they may permit me to pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the houses that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. And then you can just flip over to Nehemiah 9, 1. So see just the faithful provision of the Lord and opening these doors that 
you know, really would not have been opened otherwise <clears throat> unless the Lord opened them. Nehemiah 9, 1. This is after the revival at the water gate in chapter 8. But in 9, 1, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And so what we have here is just an incredible revival as Israel is just confronted with their sin and the reason for the captivity and yet God's faithfulness in bringing them back to the land. And as they read the word in Nehemiah chapter 8, revival began to spring forth in the hearts of the people. They began to weep and say, Amen, as the law was read and as the, the uh, Levites gave the sense of the scriptures. And these men, as they hear this, they just begin to assemble and fast and mourn for their sin. And they confess their sin and the sins of their fathers and their idolatry and their wickedness. And those reasons that they were led captive. And we see just this revival, this public confession of sin, intermarriage with foreign women, sexual immorality. Sin was dealt with here in Nehemiah chapter 9. And we see just one thing that just accompanied that was this fasting, this desperation, realizing who God is and what he's done in, in his plan and his purpose of redeeming us. And realizing what we've done to him, rebelling and sinning and spitting in his face and glorifying the created thing rather than glorifying the one that's created us. And when we realize that, it should bring about great mourning in our hearts, such a mourning, man, that we would just show the Lord, this is how much I mourn for my sin. I can't eat when I think about my sin. This is how much I need deliverance from my sin. I'm desperate for that deliverance. I'm desperate for restoration. Flip over to Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You gals should know Esther. You could probably teach me about Esther. Going through Beth's Moore study on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's a little advertisement there for the women's group. But Haman the Agathite had convinced King Ahasuerus that every Hebrew person should be annihilated so that the Persians could plunder their wealth. And in Ephesians, or excuse me, Esther chapter four, verses one through three says when Mordecai, this is Esther's uh, uncle, Mordecai learned that all this had happened. He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So just this national fast takes place. Verse 15, you can jump down there. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So you know that Esther, you know, was, was put in this land for such a time as this, that she might, uh, you know, bring peace for Israel there. <clears throat> and you see that, man, in, in, in the time that she was to raise up and be brave and go in and, and petition for the king, and expose the wickedness of Haman, you know, she, she knew and Mordecai knew, man, we need to fast and we need to pray because a lot is on the line. A lot is on the line. And when there's a lot on the line, what a great example. Pray. They prayed and they fasted. When a lot is on the line and when it's a time of great crisis, it's good for God's people to fast. It's good for his people to fast. You read about the different kinds of fasts in the scriptures, and that was an absolute fast we read about in Esther, one with no food and no water either for, for three days there. <clears throat> Those desperate times calling for desperate measures. And then, you know, you know the story. Miraculously, the king couldn't sleep that night. He commanded for the books of the Chronicles of Judah to be brought into him. He wrote, and then he read about Mordecai's great works, asked if Mordecai had ever been rewarded, 
pretty soon Haman's, the wicked man is hanging on the gallows outside. Those desperate times called for desperate measures and God brought about an incredible victory. Brought about incredible salvation. Just neat to be reminded of as I read over my notes again, just how in uh, World War II, the king of England called the British to a day of prayer and a day of fasting. But a couple centuries before that, England was called to a solemn day of fasting and prayer because they were threatened from an invasion from the French across the channel. And so on February 6, 1756, John Wesley writes in his journal, the fast was a glorious day, one that London had scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more than full and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God will hear our prayer and there will be a lengthening of our tranquility. In his journal, there's a footnote that informs us that humility was turned to national rejoicing for the threat of invasion by the French was averted. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Man, we are in desperate times in so many ways here in Prineville. How powerful when a national crisis lays ahead of us, the church humbles herself with fasting and with prayer. God's Chosen Fast, just man, a powerful book in my life, says that if there is a local church threatened with discord and division, if spiritual life is waning and worldliness is abounding, if conversions are few and backslidings are frequent, uh, frequent would not this be a time when leaders should call the church to prayer and fasting? I would say that every one of those things is a need within this body. Spiritual life waning. Worldliness abounding. Conversions few. Last week, looking in Acts chapter 16, that the church grew. It's Calvary of Chapel of Crook County growing. Doesn't seem like it. Not that I want to have a big church for Calvary Chapel's name or for my name. No, he must increase. I must decrease. But what we long to see are people that are dead in their sins and destined for hell being reached out to by Calvary Chapel of Crook County in such a way that the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sins and they repent and they are added to the church. Is that happening? That is not happening. Let's fast. Let's repent of our closed mouths. Let's repent of our lack of power. Let's cry out for a week for God to work revival through the hands and the feet of the people of this church. For his glory, for the furtherance of his kingdom. I need to fast for that reason. Isaiah 58. We'll just close with uh, two, two last verses here. Isaiah 58, verse 3 through 11. And actually, let's, let's just, for the sake of time, let's jump to verse 6. And everybody flip to this. Man, if you haven't been flipping to the scripture, that's, just go to this one. It's one of my favorite passages on fasting. In verses 3 through 5, we see reasons not to fast. Those are definitely good to read. But let's just look at how powerful fasting is. As Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your, excuse me, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden 
and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So we just see this benefit of personal sanctification and holiness and purity. You see, just the benefit for breaking the bonds of wickedness and, and you know, chasing away oppression. Taking off that burden that you've been carrying. Letting loose those shackles that have been on your wrists from this world, from habits. It's a good time that the Lord works in a radical way for deliverance and for freedom. In Joel chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, this is the last Old Testament verse we'll read and we'll close here. Joel chapter 2. I have to get there first. Verse 13. Or 12 and 13. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. And so may the Lord just prepare us to, to come with a broken heart, a humble heart, a heart that's broken. You know, forget the garments and tearing the garments. The Lord wants us to bring broken hearts before him, hearts that are desperate for him, hearts that recognize they're poor in and of their own strength, in and of their own resources. They need his strength and they need his resources. Stuart, you can come on up. Next week, we're going to read about consecrations of fasts. You know, this is just a time in our church where a fast is consecrated and a call is going forth to the church that we fast. And I'll tell you, there's something wrong if you're a part of this church and the leadership of this church is calling you to fast for all the reasons that we've discussed today. And you won't even consider it. You won't even pray about it. There's something wrong there. Take this week and pray about it. It's going to look different for every single one of us. Your workloads and your health conditions aren't going to allow you to do a complete fast. Pray about it. Some of you, you know, you're you're a diabetic and it's really dangerous for you not to eat certain things. That's okay. It's okay to fast from TV. It's okay to fast from, uh, you know, from Facebook and the internet and all that stuff. That is great. But I encourage you. Number one, to seek the Lord. How you can fast from food. And let's expect the Lord to do great things in our midst. Let's expect the Lord to work a purity within us. Let's expect the Lord to deepen our communion with Him and grow us in fellowship with the Lord. Let's expect the Lord to pour out upon us great power that this town could be changed for him, that his kingdom could be expanded. You can set your things aside and let's just close in prayer this morning. Just in an attitude of prayer, just heart of prayer. If you're here today and you've never tasted of Jesus, today you can taste of him. He's the bread of life. You can eat of him today and you will never hunger again. You will find complete and total satisfaction in the Lord. You can drink of him today and you will never thirst again. You can receive his grace and his mercy today. Right now where you're at, just through faith, Just receive that. Just with your lips. You can say it out loud or you can just mouth it with your lips. And just between you and the Lord, you can say, Lord, today, I eat of your body. Today, I drink of your flesh. Today, I want to be a part of you, Jesus, in such a way 
as you say, you will be in me and I will be in you. Lord, I want to have that communion that Rory's talking about with you. Even if the fruit of the vine should wither away or the flock of the fold is gone. Though my outward man should perish, Lord. Lord, in you I would be satisfied. And Lord, today, even before the fast, I humble myself before you. I confess my sins, that I am a sinner. And I just receive today forgiveness that comes through your blood that you shed for me at Calvary. And I receive the new life that you brought me when you rose from the dead. Make me a new creation in you today, Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.